The markets are not addicted to easy money. They're addicted to ever easier money. And you have to keep increasing the dosage to get the same effect uh, on the markets. So the next crisis is going to demand so much more. I mean, it'll blow your socks off. You will literally not believe what they're going to come up with the next time. That will really light a fire under a mining sector that is completely washed out right now. So I'm looking at this as a, really a generational opportunity in the mining stocks. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart. The last time today's guest expert was on this channel, he warned that rising interest rates would cause a surge in the debt service cost on America's national debt and that that would perhaps be the destabilizing trigger that would break something and force a policy pivot by the Federal Reserve. Well, the first half of that prediction has proven correct. Interest on the national debt is on track to exceed $1 trillion this year. So what about the second part of the prediction? Will higher debt service costs for the government, for corporations, for consumers be the straw that breaks the economy's back? And if so, what will the repercussions be? To discuss, we welcome back to the program Brian London, CEO of Jefferson Financial, publisher of goldnewsletter.com, and producer of the excellent New Orleans Investment Conference. Brian, thanks so much for joining us today. Adam, it is always such a great pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me. No, oh, well, it's a mutual appreciation society here, Brian. Super excited to dive into uh, this national debt topic with you, but I got a lot of other questions for you that tap your direct expertise. So really looking forward to this discussion. Uh, if we can, though, let's just kick it off the way I like to kick off all these discussions. What's your current assessment of the global economy and financial markets? You know, Adam, I, I think what the, the markets were trying to do, uh, I guess it was in early July, uh, they were starting to price in the uh, the essential fact that this interest rate hiking cycle has peaked or gotten, gotten very close to the peak. Uh, and then, of course, we had the Fed come in with a, another round of rhetoric and another quarter point hike. And the markets, I think, have regathered their feet uh, figuratively and are starting to try to reprice in that next big thing that's coming down the road. You know, we've had a uh, tremendous bond sell-off, global bond sell-off. We've had soaring yields, soar, soaring treasury yields. Uh, that rally came back a little bit in yields and, and is rising again. We've had the dollar uh, fluctuate, but it has been strong over the last month or so. And I think all that reflects this recognition that the Fed is going to try and keep things higher for longer. But there, still in all, there are markets out there, you know, and I know we're going to get to it, but predominantly gold that have refused to sell off in the face of all of these uh, uh, pressures against us and these headwinds. And, and I think that's part of uh, a realization from some big moneyed interests, some, some deep pocketed investors, including central banks, that the next big thing is going to be something that's going to force the Fed to go to the down cycle uh, and start lowering rates and actually pivot. And, you know, there are a lot of candidates for what that will be, what will cause that. But the record clearly shows that that's the next thing that's going to happen. And uh, it's just a matter of when and, uh, <clears throat> and from where it comes. 
Okay, well, that's a great segue then into the topic of the intro, right, which is debt service costs, right? So um, there have been a lot of people, and I've interviewed a lot of people on this channel over the past year and a half, Brian, who at almost every milestone on this journey we've been on, on, on rate hikes and quantitative tightening since it started, have said, oh, gosh, you know, the Fed's going to break something in this process, and there's no way they're going to get to 3%. Fed funds rate. Well, there's no way they're going to get to four. There's no way there's going to get to five, right? And and Powell, to his credit, has been very consistent in saying, I'm going to keep doing this until inflation is under control, right? Um, I do think there's a lot of people who have been scratching their heads who, you know, saying, my gosh, I, I, I thought if higher rates were going to break something, it would have happened earlier. Um, there are a lot of people out there now, well, there are a lot of people out there now saying, well, maybe it's different this time. Right. You know, maybe this this whole lag effect doesn't really apply to the environment we're in right now. I don't know why they think that. I mean, except for the logic of, well, it hasn't happened yet. So maybe it's not going to happen from here. which I don't think it's very logical. Um, I've been one of those voices that have been just repeatedly banging the drum of the lag effect, saying it's real, folks. Just because it hasn't happened yet doesn't mean it's not going to happen. Don't take your eye off the ball. Um, but understandably, the longer time goes on and, and status quo generally continues working the way it's it's been working. Um, I understand the average person's, you know, response of just kind of putting their head back in the sand and saying, well, it doesn't seem to be something to be worried about here. So you mentioned there's a lot of candidates of things that could break. Um, but let's let's just start with these higher interest rates. I mean, what do you think are the most likely uh, candidates that that they themselves would break, and and obviously I'll just toss one out there to get the conversation started. But we hear quotes like twenty uh, percent of the corporate fleet of American companies are quote unquote zombie companies, right? And these are companies that you know have to borrow to pay their their debt service payments, and they could do that when rates were close to zero. You know, Fed funds rate was close to zero, and they were borrowing at you know three uh, percent or something like that or less. Um, now, if they have to go refinance, they're going to be borrowing at more than twice that, right? Uh, so that obviously could be a candidate. Um, what else is on your danger radar? Well, first off, I think I was in that chorus of voices saying, no way they're going to get to 3%, no way they're going to get to <laughs> So yeah, and I fully admit, uh, you know, all credit to the FOMC and Powell, I never expected them to be that resolute. Uh, in this inflation fight and, uh, you know, and they're sticking to it. But the fact remains that there's simple math involved here. And right now, the Fed itself says that the uh, the current interest payments on the federal debt are $970 billion. So as we speak, there has been more debt that has reset since that last update. So we are at a trillion dollars, as I had predicted before. And yet, the sun is coming up and everything seems fine and nobody's talking about it still. I mean, other than you and I and a few others. So why hasn't it had an effect? Well, I think it will. I think it will eventually. We're starting to see some commentary that uh, in mainstream uh, uh, publications really across the political spectrum, noting that the costs of, or this deficit this year is soaring way beyond where we should be outside of a recession. And in that there will have to be a new normal going forward in that uh, deficits as a percentage of GDP are going to be at World War II levels going forward. 
And of course, we're not fighting a world war right now. So there's very little justification for that. And so I would have expected that uh, a trillion dollars in interest payments, although it hasn't been widely uh, 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 talked about or politicized yet, and I think that's still to come, I thought that would have been a brick wall that would have stopped the Fed, but they don't seem to, to care about that. Now, at the current rate, we are going to be, as the federal debt, the, the interest costs, the interest rate in the federal debt resets closer to a, between four and five percent, we're going to be closer to one and a half trillion dollars. So at some point, you know, this is going to matter to someone. But you also mentioned the uh, the other part of this, one of the other two legs of the stool being corporate debt, the other being individual debt. But corporate debt, those zombie companies out there are still paying on debt largely that was priced at, you know, in a zeroed interest rate environment. And that debt is resetting over the months ahead. And I saw uh, about a month or two ago, Jim Grant, I forget the actual number, he said how many trillions of dollars in additional interest costs this would be not total interest costs but an additional interest cost in that corporate debt but it is equal to the combined economies of germany and japan for these companies oh that were barely able to make their their debt payments uh you know at zeroed interest rates, and now are just going to be i mean it's going to be a, an axe to the head of these zombie companies that is resetting over the months to come and that's like a tsunami of debt service costs that's about to wash onto the shores. That I think, if uh, anything, will be the, uh, the 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 one factor that's going to bring on that recession that we've been expecting for so long. Yeah, and and I think you said earlier, um, you said if I remember correctly, it was you said it's simple math, right? It, it's yeah. th th this is not. Um, you know, some some gamble you're making where, oh, there's a probability of X, you know, if if something magical happens in the economy or markets or whatever, or political change or whatever, you're just saying at the current debt levels we have, if they mature on their existing schedule and interest rates remain in whatever ballpark they're in right now, it's going to be adding this gargantuan amount of incremental interest. You, you, so the incremental interest you said is as large as the combined economies of Germany and Japan. Did I get that right? Yeah. Yeah. My it, goodness. And this is from Jim Grant, who's obviously a great source, but yeah, it, it's amazing. And that's just sitting out there waiting to hit. It's going to come, um, you know, at some point, um, you know, and we talk about the interest payments on the, on the federal debt and people tend to uh, dismiss that. Because, you know, well, number one, the, the federal government's not going to run out of money. They just make more. Right. Which, of course, is its own implications. But they talk about gross public debt and debt owned by the public. The implication in that is always that the, the debt that's owned by these uh, government sponsored enterprises, the, the government itself, we owe it to ourselves and that we shouldn't have to worry about it. But that debt's held by, you know, all the entitlement programs, Social Security first amongst them. So there's an argument to be made that that debt before any other is going to have to be paid off. And that's about 20% of the gross federal debt. 
So even if you dismiss that and say, you know, those interest payments go back in the federal government, we're still going to be over a trillion dollars in net interest payments in the, in the very near future at the rate that this debt is resetting. Okay. Um, okay. So um, pretty grim outlook on, on the debt math. Um, obviously, the debt math is highly dependent upon what's happening with interest rates and, and with yields. Um, wh where do you see interest rates headed from here? And, and well, let's start about the talk about the short end of the curve first, because that's obviously what the Fed can control. Um, I think you mentioned earlier on, it's, it's, it's likely, don't let me mischaracterize you here, but it's likely that we've, we've, we're at, or we're very close to being at the peak in, in rate hikes that you, you don't seem to see that federal reserve is going to hike much more. And, and that's Powell's guidance, right? You know, we're, we're going to remain open, but we're going to be data driven. Right. Um, I guess it, I guess it really comes down to higher for longer, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. how, how much longer, uh, you know, can, can they do this? Um, do, do you see, like, let's just look out for the next year. Do you see the fed funds rate kind of hanging out where it is, or do you think the fed's hand will, will be forced by one way or another beforehand, either because something breaks and it's got to intervene to rescue, or I'm just holding out the potential that maybe it gets down to 2% inflation faster than it thought. And it says, okay, job done. And we can start unwinding. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Yeah, I, the latter I don't think is, um, is likely. I don't think the Fed can get, is going to be able to get the rate of inflation down to 2%. I think that's probably going to settle down around three to four percent and of course the historic record tells us that uh inflation comes in spikes you know waves uh, upon a rising tide and um and so we are going to see some spikes coming up that may try to uh, maybe encourage the fed to to hike but before that happens yeah i do think the fed is probably done or close to done, maybe another quarter point in that the cycle has essentially peaked so that it is the, the danger really is how long at these at these levels. Nobody really knows, and I wouldn't pretend to be able to predict that, but getting back to the, the point that you kind of started everything with, uh, you don't go from the, the easiest monetary policy uh, really in human history, 5,000 year lows on interest rates, negative yielding, sovereign debt, uh, tremendous uh, fiscal uh, rescue efforts. You don't go from the easiest monetary policy ever seen to one of the harshest rate hiking policies ever experienced in the, the flip of a figurative switch with probably breaking a few things, not just one thing, but a few things. So I think the Fed's intent is to keep it higher for longer. I don't think that they're going to be able to do that because of the damage that this uh, interest rate regime is going to do to the U.S. and global economies and what it's going to do to corporations, all of those zombie corporations in the months just ahead. 
uh, the candidates for something that's going to force the Fed to to stop and perhaps start lowering rates. There, there's a lot of them. I mean, we have uh, the debt service costs. We just mentioned that. We have the recession, which could be exacerbated dramatically by a wave of bankruptcies. You know, bankruptcies, bankruptcy filings in August were, I believe, the highest ever for that month, and they've really spiked. Right, um, and we've had more this year than in any year prior to 2010, I think, already. Yeah, yeah. Some really dramatic statistics there. And, you know, the bottom line being we're seeing a, a spike in bankruptcies already. Um, there are a lot of candidates. There's the banking crisis. You know, the, the that banking crisis, to me, what was almost there, it wasn't so much that there were just a few select banks that didn't hedge duration risk adequately. I don't think uh, those banks, their business practices were that far out of line with what the vast majority of regional banks were doing and have been doing. You look at Silicon Valley Bank, for instance, that was a classic bank run. That was a loss of confidence as deposits went to either higher yields or to the safety of larger banks uh, due to perception of risk for that specific bank. So that could reignite very quickly. We have the derivative issue is always out there. So there are a lot of candidates right now uh, that for the event or the crisis or the development that will force the Fed to cut rates again. We don't know exactly what that's going to be eventually. It's very likely to be something where we haven't even thought of yet. And the timing is obviously uncertain. But I think we're, we can be pretty confident that something is going to force the Fed to, to lower rates again, because that's just the way things work. That's these cycles. The Fed tries to normalize and then it's forced once again to, to come to the rescue of the markets and inject that liquidity. And the next time it does so, it's going to have to do so much more than it did post-COVID to get the same effect on these uh, these markets that are absolutely addicted to, to that monetary adrenaline. Yeah, it's interesting. You say the monetary adrenaline. Um, I think a lot of people, myself included, thought we would see the addict go into withdrawal shock a lot faster. Um, mm -hmm. You know, when the Fed withdrew the, the monetary adrenaline you know, beginning of last year. Um, I've had some people on this program, you know, of late, uh, talking about how there's there's still sort of stealth liquidity going on now more on the fiscal side, right? And maybe that's what's kept the the addict from from fully crashing at this point. Um, all right. So a couple questions for you. One very tactical. Um, you, you, you talked about recession like almost like it was almost in process, but it, it sounded like you're pretty confident a recession is going to happen. Uh, and I just want to ask you, is that indeed your your forecast here? Um, simply because 2023 has become the year of the, well, maybe it won't be a hard landing, maybe it'll be a soft landing. And it's now morphed into a, hey, I think we're in the no landing world. Yeah, I I think that, if, if, as you know, as well as anyone, every major indicator is pointed toward recession, even some that have been, uh, you know, at least in the modern area, infallible. So mm -hmm. that's really what I'm basing it on. Uh, I will be the first to say that the U.S. economy is so dynamic, has this innate dynamism that you have to really screw things up to, to mess it up and to, to send it into recession. 
And uh, and that's the good news. The bad news is I think they're really screwing things up. <laughs> and, uh, and, and again, you don't have the, that kind of a rate height cycle in an economy that has been built upon a foundation of, of zeroed interest rates, um, you know, without something happening. And, and so I, I think it's going to happen. I Again, I. I'm somewhat uh, somewhat of a cynic, Adam, uh, having talked to so many people over so many years uh, predicting the next crisis. And I don't know that any of them have ever been right, you know, at least 100 percent right. And nobody's really smart enough, I believe, to predict the exact path ahead here. We can just kind of look at probabilities. Um but I think we can be confident that something is on the horizon. And I think the markets are starting again to, to factor that in. The fact that gold has, uh, you know, gold lost 1%, according to the World Gold Council reporting yesterday, it lost 1% in the month of August. And that's a month where Treasury yields soared, where the, the dollar index uh, catapulted higher, and yet gold only lost 1%. Now that doesn't say that there isn't uh, some. There aren't some people selling gold. What that does say is there's some big players buying gold in the face of, of those kinds of headwinds. To keep the price supported, there has to be very strong demand out there. And I think because gold is one of the most powerful uh, predictive mechanisms in the investment markets, I think the people buying gold are are betting that we are going to to have some kind of a turn in this major hawkish majorly hawkish monetary policy in the months just ahead okay and that's that's the segue i'm trying to make here so um let me let me just repeat because I, I think i heard you say yes your sort of default expectation is that we're going to go into recession probably at some point in next year because yeah, yeah, i heard I you say earlier so. yeah yeah and if I heard you correctly, you said two things. You said you think the Fed will will intervene to rescue and that it will likely require, if I heard you right, even more intervention than what we saw during the pandemic. And and, and that's basically just because the, the, the market has, um, it, it's bearing so much debt at this point in time. And, and you also kind of get into Lacey Hunt's uh, you know, cautionary zone of like the Fed, you know, increasingly pushing on a string where it just takes more and more uh, stimulus to to generate the same amount of response in the economy. But let me just pause there for a second. Did, did I get it correctly that you you anticipate if the Fed intervenes, it's going to be on on par or higher than what we saw during the yeah, pandemic? And that's just if you look at the the track record. You know, if if you look at Fed policy ever since Volcker killed off inflation. You see a ever descending stair step in uh, in interest rates in response to every little slowdown in the economy, every recession. They always lowered interest rates, but were always uh, in unable to raise rates even to the previous midpoint of uh, the the midpoint of the previous range. So you had this constant stair step until you got to two thousand and eight and the great financial crisis. Then they went straight to zero. Uh, and came up for all these programs, uh, expanded the Fed balance sheet, et cetera, over the next really four to five years. Post-COVID, they came in and they did everything that they 
did in 2008 over four to five years. They did in essentially four to five days mm -hmm. and much more of it. So the reason being that the markets are not addicted to easy money. They're addicted to ever easier money. And you have to keep increasing the dosage to get the same effect uh, on the markets. So the next crisis is going to demand so much more. I mean, it'll blow your socks off. You will literally not believe what they're going to come up with the next time. And, and so this is a clear cycle that they have to either look, for years, they just lowered rates ever lower until they hit zero bound. And now they're having to come up with all this direct fiscal stimulus. Um, so next time, what are they going to have to do to get to achieve that same kind of shock and awe that they did post-COVID? It, it's okay. going to be something that's going to be mind-boggling. It'll be mind-boggling, massive, blow your socks off, as you said. Okay. So uh, is it... Do you think then in terms of, of the Fed funds rate, they'll be going back to ZERP or, or, or close in, closer in that direction, obviously, to where they are right now, right? Yeah, you know, they'd have to cut at least three, uh, uh, 300 basis points to get any kind of an effect on the economy. And they can do that now. But I, I think they would probably have to get to zero. This is the first time they've been able to raise rates past the uh, the previous uh their midpoint of the previous range that said it wasn't really hard to do when rates were at zero in the in the previous high was at two and a half percent right so, <laughs> you know, it wasn't it wasn't a high bar to clear as it were but okay yeah the, the pattern will i think prove out once again okay so you you, you think they're headed significantly lower maybe as low as zerp reason why i'm going here is you said earlier that you expected that inflation isn't going to come down to 2% and it's probably going to hang out somewhere. I think if I heard, remember correctly, you said around three to 4%, yeah. right? And where I'm going with that is now a segue to the precious metals, which is your kind of daily area of expertise, which a lot of people that track the precious metals say precious metals really respond to real rates, right? And uh, particularly they, they, they tend to perform quite well when real rates are negative. Uh, and less well when real rates are positive. And just to set up your answer here, we've now had positive real rates for a while now, and we haven't had them for a long time. We've had positive real rates now, first time in forever. And gold's actually hung in there pretty well, yeah. right? And I'll let you opine on that. But um, you know, some would say well, that's showing some real strength with gold, that that it's, it's, it's kryptonite, right? It's nemesis, positive real rates aren't really weakening it that much, right? It's, it's, it's not powering the new highs, but it's hanging out not too far from its highs, right? Um, if we then shift in a relatively you know, short period of time, if something breaks and the Fed has to get really aggressive from these positive real rates to negative real rates and maybe even quite negative real rates, uh, that should be very gold and precious metals positive. So with that context set up, Let's trend all over into the, the precious metals part of this discussion. Um, first, if you could just react to that to see if I summed up things accurately. And then secondly, if you can just sort of give us the current state of what's happening in the precious metals world right now as you see it. Yeah, I, I think you said it perfectly, Adam, that gold is and silver are, I think, looking at this current state of being of positive real rates as being temporary. And 
are looking a bit further down the road that something is going to come up to force the Fed's hand, that the cycle will repeat as it inevitably does. Um, and when that happens, you know, we are, it will likely happen in some kind of a crisis situation, and it will therefore demand a uh, the kind of response we've seen from the Federal Reserve. And that's the big bet on the metals right now, that this will be the next big thing that will send, in gold's case, prices to well above uh, the record high. Uh, and in silver's case, you know, far higher than where it is right now. One of the comparisons I've been making a lot for people lately is, uh, well, to set that up, in the metals market, the, the metals have been holding in there, but the mining stocks have not. The mining stocks have leveraged uh, the metals to the downside and have not been performing really across the whole spectrum from uh, the major producers down to the junior exploration stocks. So the question for a lot of people in this industry or in this sector is what is going to, to get them to, to move? And I've been drawing on my experience back in 1999 to 2000, that double bottom in gold. When gold hit $252 an ounce, the mining stocks were completely bombed out at the time, as you can imagine, when we had uh, that kind of a bear market in the metals. But they gradually turned over the next couple of years as we had about a two-year uh, uptrend, consistent uptrend in the gold price, the mining stocks started to uh, to respond. And then we ended up with a near decade-long bull market that a lot of people made a lot of money in. Compared to today, the mining stocks are bombed out again, especially in relation to the metals prices. With gold about 6 or 7% away from an all-time high, we won't need two years of an uptrend to get the mining stocks ignited again. We'll only need about two weeks. So if we just have a little bit of an uptrend in the gold price, which where we are now, if we gain five, 6%, we're gonna be at new all time highs. That will really light a fire under a mining sector that is completely washed out right now. So I'm looking at this as uh, really a generational opportunity in the mining stocks. The last time we saw it was around 2000. But at that point in time, it took us a couple of years before the mining stocks really got moving. Now it, it won't take any time at all. All right. Um, okay, so much to dig into there. Um, why don't I stay with the metals just for a moment before we get to the miners? Um, do you see the metals as, as kind of then just sort of being range bound until something breaks from here? Are there any other catalysts, positive or negative, you see that that could influence the price of the metals themselves materially up until some big crisis like this? Yeah, I think seasonality is the obvious one, you know, where we've just closed the door in summer. So we have that negative influence where people are away from their desk. Uh, markets generally are not. Uh, that attentive, that factor tends to play in more for the mining stocks um, than for gold, but it's still the fall usually is a better period for gold. And I think that's going to help us. And, you know, if you're looking for a big catalyst for, for the metals, if you're looking for a big catalyst for equities, for bonds, for anything, uh, every market these days is driven by central bank policy. And that really means just the Fed. The Fed leads everyone, leads everything. 
And, and that's the factor that uh, you, you need to look at to really determine where anything's gone. Okay. And let's just pontificate here for a second. So I'm not going to hold you to this. Sure. But the Fed does what you think it's going to do, right? Some crisis of the magnitude you think is going to happen, the Fed's response is as large as you think it's going to be. You said gold will go to new highs. Are we talking 2,500 announced new highs? Or are we talking something potentially substantially in excess of that? Well, let's look at, say, COVID, uh, where we went from, I think the bottom was $1,140 an ounce or thereabouts, and we hit uh, close to 2000 or thereabouts. Um, in the kind of environment we're talking about, um, it would not be unusual for gold to gain 20% or 30%. Gold gains 20% from this level. You're talking, what, $2,300, $2,350, or something like that on the gold price. 30%, you're probably talking $2,500 or thereabouts. That's kind of typical for a gold bull market. You know, in the early stages of uh, the, the 2000s bull market, when gold came off that low at $252, it quickly doubled in price. So, you know, you get at numbers that would have a few years ago seemed absolutely crazy. And today, to, to some extent, seems surprising. But when you work out the, the percentages at numbers this high, it is very easy to get to a $2,300 to $2,500 gold price over a year or over two years. And that just changes everything uh, when you're talking about mining stocks at their current levels. And when you talk about uh, gold producers' margins, when you add another three, $400 to the current margins, that you're talking about uh, tremendous in increases in share prices in a sector that is already uh, washed out right now. Okay. Um, and it's, it was important for me to kind of box this because there are some people out there that are talking about, hey, you know, when gold really turns in the next or whatever, you know, they're saying this could go to, you know, 3,000 and 5,000. Some people are out there with like a $10,000 ounce. Um, I don't hear you saying that you're expecting that kind of a dramatic surge, at least in the next couple of years. Correct me if I'm wrong. But even without it, what I hear you saying, which we're going to get into in a second when we shift to the, the miners, is you're saying even a 25 to 30 percent surge in the underlying base metals should light a tremendous fire under the, the mining complex in such a way, to use your terms, that there may be general generational opportunities to build wealth in that sector. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the only reason I didn't predict, you know, multi-thousand dollar prices on increases on gold is because you didn't give me a chance to. Now, if you give okay. me a, <laughs> you know, quite, quite literally, though, every major bull market in gold uh, the, from 74 uh, to 76, 77 to 1980, and uh, 2000 to 2011 has seen the price of gold go up six to eight times, really seven to eight times. So if you look at the bottom of this cycle, is around $1,140. So if we have that same kind of experiences in the three previous gold bull markets, you're talking at about- 7,000? 
six, eight thousand dollars on gold price. Wow. Okay. Um, and, and I don't hear you necessarily calling for that, but you're saying there's a historical precedent for it. Uh, I don't even want to keep this discussion in that range because that's a that, that's a world I'm not sure anybody, even existing gold uh, investors, are prepared for. Um, but you're saying there's still, you know, fortunes to be made long before we even got to a crazy price like exactly. that, right? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, last question on the metals before we get to the miners. Um, All set for your flight? Yep. I've got everything I need. Eye mask, neck pillow, T-Mobile, headphones. Wait, T-Mobile? You bet. Free in-flight Wi-Fi. 15% off all Hilton brands. I never go anywhere without T-Mobile. Same goes from a water bottle, chewing gum, nail clippers, okay, passport. Okay, I'm going to leave you to it. Find out how you can experience travel better at T-Mobile.com slash travel. Qualifying plan required. Wi-Fi were available on select U.S. airlines. Deposit and Hilton Honors membership required for 15% discount. Terms and conditions apply. You know, you you are, uh, I, I know from our long history, Brian, you know, you, you are a long-term skeptic of uh, fiat currencies in terms of, you know, uh, loss of purchasing power that they all exhibit over time for fundamental ways in which they're constructed combined with the profligate and, and uh you know, uh, spendthrift ways of, of the humans that run our political yep. and monetary systems. Um, is, is there a monetary argument you want to layer in here at all, too? Yeah, I, I think that, again, if you look back 40 years, really even 60 years, going back to the, the uh, debut of deficit spending in the guns and butter uh, 60s, um, you see a clear trend of the dollar uh, depreciation of ever easier money. And this cycle, I think, this long-term multi-decadal trend is in its end game. You know, we're seeing uh, much more dramatic crises. We're seeing them coming fast on the heels of the previous one. We're seeing, uh, metaphorically, the waters circling more quickly around the drain. So, I think we're in the end game of that cycle of that trend. Now that doesn't mean uh, that's going to happen in two years. It doesn't mean that the end is going to happen in five or even 10 years, but how many cycles, boom bust cycles can we go through where the, the central banks come in and ever more dramatically create liquidity or depreciate their currencies uh, with the stroke of a few keys how many more of these cycles do they go through before those currencies lose all credibility? And, and you, as you know, when you get to the ends of these cycles, things happen much more quickly, that more exponentially. Right. So, um, whereas I don't think we can predict the timing. We don't know whether it's going to be this cycle or the next or the next. I think we have to recognize that trend and know that going into it, we want things that over the very long sweep of history, hold their value in the face of depreciating currencies. And foremost among those is gold. Then you have silver, then other tangible assets, real estate. People need to look at these things and position their portfolios for a future that I think is you know, indeterminate, but from a big picture standpoint is perfectly clear. Okay. Um, all right. So uh, you... Well, let me say this. It's 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 
worth pointing out that uh, the central banks, which you know publicly, uh, you know, have referred to gold as a barbarous relic, right? Yeah. Something that uh, hey, it's it's it doesn't really fulfill the role that it did. Uh, I believe it's true that we've we've seen record central bank gold buying over the past year. Is that is that true? Are, are they are they still buying at at yeah. at or near uh, record high levels? Yeah, at record levels, I think on quarterly bases. Um, but yeah, they are. They have been. Um, and the leaders over the last few years of that were Russia and China. And I don't know that it was necessarily for any uh, specific strategy, but perhaps just sensing, uh, you know, that, that these trends are culminating, at least from the Chinese standpoint. From Russia's standpoint, I think it's it's just trying to gain independence from the from the U.S. Right. Uh, and but Russia has not been buying; they've been somewhat preoccupied. China has been buying; their official totals just eclipsed five thousand tons. Most people believe it's it's much more than that. Uh, but yeah, and, and, and sorry, just to interrupt, but for for relative sake, as as far as we know, the U.S. has around eight thousand tons. Right? Is that true? I believe so. That sounds familiar. Yeah. Okay. So they're catching up, basically. They are catching <laughs> and, up. And, and, and may actually be far ahead of us. We just don't know. You know, there's the whisper numbers that are out there. Yeah. And, and perhaps just as importantly, they were been selling down their treasury holdings to buy gold. And Russia completely sold down its treasury holdings to buy gold uh, years ago. Right. Um, there's a uh, There's a great comic i'll see if i can find and put on the screen here um i think it's done by axel merck's organization yeah but it shows the u.s and china uh in, in, a, in a, a money fight and and we're throwing bricks of gold over at, at the chinese and they're throwing dollars our way and so we're getting this big pile of dollars up on our side and they're getting this big pile of gold bricks up on their side and you're thinking hmm who's really winning this war because <laughs> well that's like that the Chinese is, are course, making out like bandits yeah that is of course exactly what happened uh in the early 70s that's what Charles de Gaulle was doing to the U.S. and taking all of the gold out of uh as much gold as he could get out of Fort Knox and Nixon's hand was was really forced that's why Nixon had to slam the gold window shut in 71, because of exactly that, right? Yeah, he could have either done that or devalued the dollar uh, and just changed the ratio, and that would have stopped it. But that would have been a, a public admission of failure on his part. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so um, last question. I lied. This is my last question on the medals before we get <laughs> to the minors. Um, so for people that perhaps are, are maybe don't, have a lot of, of precious metals holding right now or getting inspired or maybe a little like nervous, anxious from what you're painting here and you're thinking, oh, I should start accumulating precious metals from here. I imagine you would say in general, you're not giving personal financial advice, but you'd probably say, yeah, that's probably a smart thing to do. Um, but I imagine you would say, and correct me if I'm wrong here, you would say, hey, when this crisis arrives, yeah, you expect the metals prices to, to perform very well. But there may be a period at the onset where they actually get pulled down with everything, because we've yeah. seen in the past with big crises, when there's a when there's a downdraft and you have margin calls and you have you know all that that vortex of volatility, you have a lot of people that are being forced to have to liquidate whatever assets they have that still have value to meet margin calls and things like that, and and there can be a period of time where the precious metals get dragged down with that before they then find their true level. Um, 
Am I describing this correctly? Absolutely. In, you, in a crisis environment, you have that liquidity vacuum uh, that where everything goes down. Everything that can be sold goes down. And gold in particular, if, the, uh, there's, if it's widely held by institutions, uh, then it gets sold because it is the ultimate liquidity and its advantages then work against it. And it's, it's the piggy bank that gets broken in the emergencies to meet margin calls. Um, so that it does go down. But if you think that you will be able to buy it at that point in time and be nimble enough to then get a huge position in the metals and, uh, and ride it on the way back up, uh, I don't think that's you know a bet that will usually pay off, at least for most investors. Uh, I, I think you need to have those because it go, comes and goes in a flash. In 2008, we saw gold go from a, I'm trying to remember the numbers, $1,000 to $700, and it had $100 swings on a daily or, or a two-day basis back and forth until it stabilized and then tripled over the next uh, uh, two years. So, you know, you can be smart and, and buy uh, some at the bottom, but I would buy Get your holdings together now, especially your holdings that you would categorize as insurance. And if you have speculative funds, and that's another thing that, you know, generally is a good thing to do. Keep some dry powder for these kinds of opportunities that when you see that sell off come to jump in and, and take advantage of it, because the rebound is is typically quite sharp. Okay, great. Um, I want to make sure people are aware of that so that if you're new, you, you don't get shaken out during that time period and you right. just added even good, good point. smarter smarter knowledge on top of that. Okay, so let's finally get over into the miners here. So you know, that's where you believe the real action is going to happen. That's because, as you said, mining stocks are leveraged to the price of the underlying metals. Um, and to help folks sort of understand that, um, uh, as Brian was saying earlier, when the when the metals prices goes up, the uh, the mining companies have their costs of extraction or acquisition of, of of the metals, and and once the gold price goes up above that, uh, it's all margin for them. It's all gravy, right? And so you can go from a company that is making gold profitably, um, and let's say maybe it's 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 uh, you know at the current gold price. Uh, there's a hundred dollars of, of profit per ounce of gold uh, that the, the mining company is making. Well, if the gold price goes up another hundred dollars, well, well, now their their profit has just doubled, right? right? And so that that's the way it begins to work here. Or think about it like this: you know, if if uh, if, if the price of something is going up, you know, the mining companies are like the it mints. It's 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 almost like if a currency's value is going up, these are the these are the companies that are minting it. They're taking it out of the ground, so they benefit yeah. the most from all of this. So tell just just set the stage for us here for why you think uh, this moment in time really is the opportunity to build again to use your word generational wealth in the mining space. What's so unique about right now? The in relation to the metals prices, the mining stocks are cheaper than they have ever been in history. Um, so if you have a bit of an uptrend that reignite, reignites interest in the sector you're going to have a rebound effect that, you know, in a, in a typical bull market, uh, uh, assets go from oversold to overbought and they overshoot equilibrium. 
just to get to where they should be fairly valued, uh, according to the metals prices, you're talking about the potential to multiply your money in a lot of these stocks, especially when you get closer to the uh, the juniors that have or, or developers that have significant resources but aren't yet uh, producing companies. Um, so if you get to the kind of market that we're talking about, where you have significant gains in the metals, then and you have that in a leverage, then you're you're talking about the kind of opportunity that you know, the only time I can think in my career that it was similar was around 2000, but it took us a few years to really experience those kinds of gains. It won't be as long this time. It won't take nearly as long because the metals prices are already uh, very conducive, very supportive of the mining market. It's just that the interest isn't there in the mining market. And can you explain why? Um, because we, we have heard from folks like you for the past several years that the miners have really cleaned up their game versus where they were like a decade ago, where they seem to be much more poorly run. Um, they were doing tons of shareholder dilution. Um, and when you know, we when we came off of the 2012 correction and the, the the metals prices, they were really forced to stay alive. They were really forced to again clean up their game, prove to investors that hey, we're we're worthy of putting capital into. Um, and you know, technologies presumably have gotten better to help you know miners extract and find uh, precious metals in that period of time. Um, I get that everything kind of got sold off last year, um, but this year the markets have have been on fire. Now, granted, a lot of that's been driven by the Magnificent Seven tech stocks. Yeah. Um, so why is nobody looking at the miners when they're now, you know, on average, more sanguine about the prospects for the markets and saying, hey, there's some great values here? Yeah, I, you know, I think there's been some competition and other ways to leverage the metals out there. But I think the primary reason is that markets don't really care. Investors don't really care what the price of anything is. They don't care what the price of the metals are. Uh, they care where they're going. So we have not had the kind of sustained uptrend, kind of consistent uptrend, the kind of breakout that we really had expected. We've had essentially a triple top in uh, the gold price around 2050 or something in the, the gold price. And we haven't really <clears throat> firmly, decisively broken through to a new high. Once that happens, I think it's going to attract a lot of money into the sector. Now, the a triple top doesn't sound good and unless you look at the broader technical pattern in the gold uh, in the gold price. And you see a very classic multi-year cup and handle pattern. So that triple top is essentially forming the handle on the cup. And that, that technical pattern, that formation projects to a gold price of $3,000 or above. So that again is one of the reasons why I'm, I say we're, we're really at that point where a breakout, and again, only about a six or 7% increase in the gold price gets us there. A breakout to a new high really brings a lot more money into the market. And I think ignites that next stage of the gold gold market. Okay. And look, I just want to reiterate for everybody, um, you know, mining companies, highly volatile. 
Uh, mm -hmm. It is a speculative part of the investing spectrum. Um, so it really is a place where you should be investing money you can afford to lose. Um, I always encourage people to, to work with an advisor that can help you set up with hedges against your mining portfolio as well to protect on some of that downside risk. Um, I always recommend that people who are new or even moderates in this space um, to work under the, the tutelage of somebody who follows the space really closely, understands the geology, understands the management teams, et cetera. There are people out there who have newsletters and you can basically invest by looking over their shoulder, right? Where they're telling you, okay, I'm, I'm excited about these companies for this reason. They share it all. Um, that way you're just not some, you know, newbie doing this, you know, picking these stocks in your armchair with incomplete information. Um, it's, a, it's a difficult space to, to get, you know, to pick a lot of winners in, you want to take a basket approach and hopefully your winners more than make up for your losers, but guaranteed there will be losers in there. I, I, I'm, I'm saying this because I believe it to be true, but also I'm teeing up the fact that you are a publisher of one of these newsletters, uh, Brian, and I think people should who are interested in this should definitely check out goldnewsletter.com. I'll let you talk about it in just a second. But having invested in this space myself for a while, um, what's interesting, folks, is you, you, you learn how volatile it is for sure. You're definitely going to have some companies you fall in love with that just totally break your heart. Um, but you 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 will, if you're at it long enough and, and you pick good enough companies and maybe you're a little bit lucky, you can have some tremendous uh, winners. And, and fortunately this year, Brian, I finally had one, um, Snowline Gold. Yeah. I think I got into that thing at about 30 cents. That's almost $4 today. So that's over a thousand percent return. Um, very happy about that. It's made up for a lot of the other volatility in my, my mining portfolio. And I'm I'm optimistic hearing you talk about, you know, hey, this is kind of a, a gloomy uh, time in the market. So I expect that stock as well as some of the others I hold to do even better, you know, if the sector eventually catches fire. So, but I just want to let folks know that they're, you know, I, I'm, I'm walking proof that, you know, when one of these hits, it can hit real big. I know you've seen a ton of those returns in your lifetime, um, Brian. So um, what can you tell folks about Gold Newsletter? And do you want to add any additional color to what yeah. to expect to be an investor in this space? Yeah, and uh, Gold Newsletter is the the oldest precious metals advisory in the world today. This is our 52nd year and maybe the oldest uh, financial newsletter, investment newsletter still going on uh, today. But, you know, if, they, if people go to our website, goldnewsletter.com, we have a free report. And it's not just one of these free promotional reports people put together. It's a detailed 40-page report, uh, highly objective. And we, we go through every step from soup to nuts, every way you can invest in metals from futures options to physical metals to mining stocks explain how to analyze a mining stock. Importantly, we tell people what are the best conferences to go to out there, what are the best newsletters to subscribe to. You know, all of my friendly competitors in the industry that I think are worthy of your time and effort, I, I detail and give all the contact information in this, uh, in this free report. And, and, try to, and what we try to do is make clear uh, a point I tell everybody who's new to the sector that it is an inefficient sector. You can find overlooked gems lying on the ground that are tremendously undervalued and have uh, a lot of catalysts to increase their value. It, you just have to put in a little time, effort, educate yourself on it, subscribe to some of the better newsletters, go to some of the better conferences out there. 
if you do that, you can get the kinds of returns you got with Snowline Gold, uh, perhaps get something like some of the multi 10 or 20 baggers that we've been able to pinpoint over the years in, in gold newsletter. Um, but if you're not willing to do that, then you can simply buy the, the indices GDX and GDXJ and in a, you know, a strong classic bull market scenario, you might triple your money in something like that. Um, but there are tremendous, tremendous wealth building opportunities available in mining stocks in an environment when the, the metals prices are rising. Um, when, when the market is such that a rising tide is lifting all boats, it gives you those real multi-bagger potentials, but it also, and just as importantly, mitigates your risk to the downside. When even your losers are holding ground or gaining a bit, uh, it really does wonders for your portfolio. And that's the kind of market we had from say 2000 to 2011. And, and frankly, that's what I think we're, we're facing right now, a return of that kind of a bull market environment. And, and you know, if you're, if you're new to mining, and this is you know, intriguing you, um, I will say there are a lot of long-suffering mining sector investors out there like Brian and I, and I think a lot of people watching this. Uh, and, and so the good news for you, if you're just getting in now, is you have sidestepped, I think, the vast majority of the pain that the rest of us have endured. And, and who knows exactly when the subcycle will start, but I can tell you, you're 10 years closer to it, jumping in now, you know, than you were uh, when when a lot of us uh, old graybeards, uh, you know, got in or, or, or were in it. Um, all right, I, there are a couple other resources of yours uh, in one or two Wealthians I wanna mention before we wrap up here, Brian. Real quickly though, um, and I'm not gonna sadly be able to give you a lot of time to to really delve into it deeply, but maybe a 30 second plug. Is, is there a company right now that's on your, your list of companies that you know you like in Gold Newsletter uh, that you think is just particularly interesting that someone who might want to just go and, and learn more about a company that's got your attention uh, can go check out? Yeah, I'd say uh, I'll give you three. Fireweed metals, energy metals, it's uh, zinc and tungsten primarily, uh, uh, great company. It's had a, a wonderful few months, but I think it's got a lot more to go. I like um, uh, I like Vizsla Silva Silver, uh, great silver resource, building a great resource. I own um, both of those companies, by the way. And a third that I just heard an update on today that I really like, Helio Star Metals, is uh, another one that I like, and and I also own. Okay, great. Thank you for doing that. Uh, and folks, if you want to dig into more deeply why Brian's interested in that stuff, go check out goldnewsletter.com. Um, all right. Well, so Brian, you and I have have uh, known each other for a long time now, I think over a decade. And uh, we get together uh, oftentimes, multiple times a year, but for absolutely sure, once a year at your excellent conference in New Orleans, uh, which is coming up in early November, um, not that long after Wealthion's online conference. You just take it to a whole other level because um, you've got it's a was a four day event, um, and you get to you know see these people live. You get to you know come up to them in the hallway, actually have a real conversation with them, as well as be surrounded by a lot of like minded people. Um, in our last remaining couple of minutes, can you just tell folks whatever you want to tell them about the New Orleans Investment Conference? And, and I will say this year, just let me give it an extra plug for this year. 
your faculty for this year. I mean, there's a lot of overlap with, with, with my event, but you have brought in some amazing speakers at the very high premium end. I'm super excited to go there and meet them this year. Yeah, I am too. You know, I, I read everything, watch everything. I've done that for decades. I, like you, I think have an eye for the real talent out there, the most insightful thinkers of, of the day. And I've got just about everybody that I wanted to get this year. It's really an amazing lineup. I've got Matt Taibbi, who I think is the most important journalist of our, our generation. I have James Rickards, Danielle DiMartino Booth coming back, George Gammon. Constantin Kizen is a new addition who I know you're excited about. I'm very excited about him. I urge people to look him up. Rick Rule, Dominic Frisbee, Brent Johnson, Lynn Alden is, is coming in person. Uh, very excited about that. Dave Collum, Peter Bookvar, Jim Stack, Peter Schiff, Jim Iorio, Tavi Costa, James Lavish is a new addition this year that I'm very excited about as well. And really Dozens and dozens of real estate guys, Adrian Day, Adam Taggart, I see on this list, is one of our <laughs> featured speakers. How did he squeak in there? It goes on for dozens and dozens of the top uh, thinkers, top newsletter writers, really in the resource space especially, but covering every asset class. Um, it's going to be the, the place to be this fall. All right. Totally agree. So, folks, to learn more about Brian's excellent event and, and to learn how to register for it, just go to Wealthion.com slash N-O-I-C, and you'll have all the information there. Um, all right. And just wrapping up here, um, again, as I mentioned, Brian's uh, event is uh, right after mine. Um, mine's on uh, October 21st. I won't go into all the details. Most of you have already heard it. But if you haven't and you'd like to learn more about it or you've been you know, planning on registering for it but just haven't done so yet, Go to Wealthion.com slash conference. And as a reminder, um, you can still get the early bird price discount of almost 30% off. Uh, and if you're an alumnus, check your email inbox from me because you'll have a code that you can get an additional 15% discount on top of that 30% early bird discount. So make sure you take advantage of those rock bottom prices while they're still available. Um, if you are new to uh, investing in precious metals and have been inspired by this conversation to do so. Two resources to recommend for you. Um, one is if you're looking to, to buy metals yourself directly, um, I always recommend that folks go check out the Hard Assets Alliance uh, where you can buy metals directly. You can have them stored for you in an allocated manner, which is the only way to have them stored for you. Don't do pooled uh, storage, do allocated storage. Uh, you can pick which Brinks vault around the world you want them stored in. A lot of benefits to their program. To learn more about that, just go to wealthion.com slash HAA. And I think there's like a six-month free storage uh, option if you go through that, that link. Um, and then as Brian and I said, you know, if you are not a highly experienced investor in this space, you want to be following the guidance of somebody like Brian um, to, you know, identify what the the good opportunities are to invest in in the mining space. Um, but then there's all sorts of strategies about how you get into these stocks, um, what a percentage of your portfolio they should be, when to buy, how much to buy, um, when to revisit, when to cull. Uh, do you want to put some hedges against this stuff? Highly recommend that you work under the guidance of a professional financial advisor who can help guide you on those key uh, decisions. Uh, and if you don't have one who can do that for you, highly recommend you talk to the ones that Wealthion endorses. You can talk to them for free. To do that, just set up a free consultation by going to Wealthion.com, filling out the short form there. Totally free to have these conversations. No commitment to work with these guys. It's just a free public service. 
they offer. Um, all right, and in wrapping up here, um, if we haven't hit you with enough great resources here, uh, if you've enjoyed having Brian on this channel, I'd like to see him come back on, especially when the precious metals uh, start to move next, please voice your support for that by hitting the like button, then clicking on the red subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. Brian, it's always a pleasure speaking with you, my friend. Thanks for coming on the show. Really look forward to seeing you at your event in November. Um, any any uh, last words for the audience here as we uh, we, we say goodbye to folks? No, I just think the, the conference this year is, is a great time. The timing's perfect. I do think it's a generational opportunity. And Adam, it's always such a great pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Really looking forward to having you uh, at our conference. And we've got some great roles for you there. So uh, very excited to see you in a, in a couple of months. All right. Thanks so much, Brian. Everyone else, thanks so much for watching.